I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Today we are so pleased to be joined by Judy Spitz. Judy is a former Chief Information Officer at Verizon and has spent her entire career cultivating the next generation of female leaders. In 2016, she created WITNY, or the Women in Technology and Entrepreneurship in New York Initiative. She went on to create the Breakthrough Tech program in 2020, which is building on WITNY success in cities around the country, starting in Chicago. And we look forward to hearing more about the impact and the impetus for that program today. Judy, at Breakthrough Tech, you're cultivating and aligning both sides of the city supply chain, universities and businesses, creating ecosystems. Technical training, professional experiences, connection. What inspired you to start this program and what is happening with it currently? Well, thank you for having me, first of all. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. You know, um, I had many decades of experience of being one of the only, if not the only woman in the room in my long technical career. And as most senior leaders uh, do at, at some point in their careers, you're as much focused on the next generation of leaders coming up behind you as you are on the programs that you're responsible for leading. And uh, I simply uh, looked down into that um, pipeline and was shocked to see how few women there were coming up behind me. Uh, did my research and learned what uh, many of us now focused on this understand, which is that uh, the participation of women in uh, computing fields and careers has actually been going down over the last several decades. Um, and so it just occurred to me that it was time to take all of the large scale program management and leadership experience I had gained over my career and apply it to something I felt this passionate about. Um, the, the impetus for the design and the secret sauce of our program was first of all, the observation that the undergraduate community of women was being largely overlooked in all of the fanfare around, we need more girls in STEM. And that is not in any way to say that we shouldn't be focused on K through 12 and getting girls involved early. We absolutely should. But all the data shows that that has not been enough because the curve has not been bending. Um, and uh, we have this sort of perfect storm of opportunity at the undergraduate level, which is a higher and higher percentage of the undergraduate population are women. We're now up to 58, close to 59%. Uh, and yet only about one to one and a half percent of them are studying anything related to computing and headed towards tech careers. All the while, we know that the job opportunity and the uh, opp opportunity for um, um, uh, economic fairness, if you will, because these are good paying jobs, not to mention the need for more tech workers and more diverse tech workers. Uh, and so we were leaving basically half of the available talent pool, almost more than half on the sidelines. And so that's where this focus came from. Uh, as you mentioned, Miriam, my 
desire to work within a city ecosystem was really acknowledgement of the two sides of my personal experience, which was so many decades of uh, corporate life, uh, as well as having been steeped in academia for many years prior to that, and realizing that within an ecosystem, these two sides of the supply chain just weren't aligned. We had companies that were doing national searches for talent, and yet in their own backyard were very large, diverse public universities uh, that often were not the recruiting folks. Um, and that's where all of the uh, uh, design construct of what uh, Whitney later renamed Breakthrough Tech was focused on, was really tapping into that talent pool and trying to understand what were the barriers that were preventing these young women from getting across the transom into tech jobs? And why was it that tech companies were saying over and over again for years and years that they had they needed more women in tech and they had all these diversity initiatives and yet they were not uh, finding that talent in their own backyard? It's an extraordinary story and, and a really important effort. These numbers that you're citing are, are also, I think, astonishing and, 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 and terrible, frankly. And I'm curious, in this work, as you have talked to young women at the college age or other ages, what have you heard from them about why they're not entering the STEM workforce to the degree that we might expect they would? Um, and then what are you doing to help overcome those barriers through your work with Breakthrough Tech? So there is no uh, single magic bullet that, uh, that any group of students will tell you. There's a collection of factors, some of which are systemic, some of which are cultural, some of which are demographic. Uh, so, you know, everything from um, there is, as we well know, uh, a culture around the tech ecosystem uh, that is not friendly to underrepresented groups and that stereotype, the so-called programmer culture, uh, seeps into the understanding of what it would mean. You know, when you ask uh, the average young woman what uh, what a career as a coder or a programmer might be, the stereotype comes to mind is it's the loner sport. It's the guy who likes to hang out alone in his basement and hack code. Um, you know, if you ask for role models, you know, what do you get? You get Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs and so on and so forth. Um, I have to tell you, uh, comically, uh, there was actually a uh, sort of a man on the street, person on the street study done where they asked people to name a female uh, tech leader. And people actually said things like Siri. Uh, so, um, so, so there's that cultural <clears throat> um, aspect. There's the systemic one, which is it's hard to get into computer science classes because they're uh, overcrowded by the uh, the go-getters who sign up for all those classes. And we put hurdles in front of them, um, just like in sort of organic chemistry to get in, uh, into sort of the medical school track, uh, requiring things like advanced calculus before you could take an introduction to computer science class. There is nobody that has yet convinced me that you need advanced calculus to take the very first 
computer science class, but uh, but structurally, those things are set up that way um, uh, that keep uh, anybody but the diehards out. Um, uh, and then, of course, there's the uh, not just getting in, but sort of staying with it because retention is a challenge. Uh, and you have all kinds of things like uh, whether the courses are being taught in ways that are more mission driven. Uh, so that uh, uh, women can get attached to the field. Um, they may be interested in coding, but um, they, they'll stick with it more because they understand it as a tool to be used uh, to solve the problems that they really want to solve. Uh, so there's a curriculum piece to it. Um, and uh, there is, a, there is the, the the challenge of, of women striving to get straight A's. Uh, um, I think we've all read or heard uh, Reshma Sujani's talk about being brave, not perfect. Uh, computer science is a hard major. Um, you gotta be okay with getting B's and C's, it's fine. Um, and again, uh, I'll say this anecdotally, but there's research to show that guys in generally are fine. Um, getting B's and C's. In fact, there's a specific study that has shown that women drop out of a major in computer science with higher grades than the young men that stick with it. So you get, you, you get a whole collection of these things and what you end up is with not only barriers to entry, but forces that are pushing people, um, underrepresented students, women in particular, to say, you know what, I'll just go do something else. Um, and so what we're focused on is breaking down those barriers, uh, getting rid of those prerequisites so young women can get the excitement of that first coding class to realize, wow, you know, this isn't magic. I can do this. And oh, by the way, I can use this tool to work on the thing I'm really, really excited about. Um, get rid of some of those barriers, uh, work with faculty to change the curriculum so it is more mission-driven, and then really importantly, work with industry to create new innovative opportunities outside of the standard summer internship that everyone's competing for, to get these women in the door, get their foot in the door so they can actually experience, number one, that tech careers is not a loner sport, Everybody works in teams. Every company has a mission. The mission isn't coding. The coding is just the means to the end. Um, and that they can get a little bit of confidence and swagger that, you know what, maybe, maybe I really can envision myself here. Those are the suite of programs that we work on to get them in and to carry them through. That's interesting. So you're in the swagger building business. I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. So Judy, sometimes I feel like there are, not sometimes, most of the time I feel like there are parallel universes going on where people talk about the same perspective from really with opposite analyses. And um, from what you're telling us, there are so many barriers to entry for women and also similarly for people of color entering into tech, whether you're talking about at the college level or at the professional level. So... I've heard it said there is not a pipeline problem. 
from your insider perspective, you are in it. You are watching these students make choices and you're seeing what's happening to them. Is there a pipeline problem? Absolutely. Uh, so um, I, I, I've read those same titles. Uh, my title is There Isn't a Pipeline Problem? Baloney. Um, but it's not that simple. Uh, the real answer is it's not only a pipeline problem. So, you know, just look at the numbers. You have 60-40 split in the undergraduate community in round numbers, 60% women, 40% men. And out of the other end of that undergraduate pipeline comes out 80-20, 80% men in computer science, 20% women. So number one, no one's gonna convince me that in the field that is the fastest growing, most lucrative job market, that there isn't a filter going on in the middle of that pipeline. I mean, if you, know, if you study supply chain uh, and pipelines, uh, you look at what goes in and what comes out the other end. Um, so uh, you just look at that and you know, we have a pipeline problem. But the other way to look at it is you're a hiring manager. 80% of the resumes you're going to get are men. How could that not be a pipeline problem? So we have a pipeline problem. It's just not the only problem. We also have a problem with uh, what are the hiring managers looking for? And are, they, uh, are there algorithms that are filtering out anything but uh, sort of the prototypical uh, techie? Um, and are the hiring managers looking for people who look like them? And are there stereotypes that are biased against women and people of color? And then what is the atmosphere like in the companies that would support people that aren't sort of the typical techie? All those things are true. I just think that to assert that we don't also have a problem in the pipeline that's coming into companies is just simply not the case. Yeah, and that's actually a great segue into what we wanted to ask you about next, which is um, about the question of algorithmic bias, which you just mentioned as being an issue within the hiring process and perhaps certain proxies uh, end up um, filtering out uh, candidates um, of different genders or backgrounds uh, than the sort of typical profile of a coder. Um, Miriam and I talk a lot about algorithmic bias, and we, 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 we know about algorithmic bias in general. Um, but wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience with gender-based algorithmic bias in particular. Um, what are you seeing out there? Why should we care? Um, and you know, what might we do about it? We can come to the fixes in a minute. Maybe you can start with the diagnosis. Sure. Uh, there are so many interesting examples of this. Let's start with the reality that gender-based algorithmic bias, if we consider algorithms more broadly, has uh, always been there and was there before the digital world. Um, uh, airbags uh, were not designed for uh, people of the size and structure of, of women. Um, and that's why in the early versions of the airbags, women got injured. Um, uh, why? Because the, they were designed to work with the men who were in the design labs, who were taller and bigger and so on. Um, artificial hearts were designed uh, such that they fit into, uh, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the chest cavities of men and only 60 percent of women. Uh, none of this has to do with the digital age. 
so number one, it's always been there. But if you look at the actual very first, arguably one of the first applications of AI and algorithms was in the early days of speech recognition. And there you see the very first signs. The early speech recognizers were pretty lousy at recognizing voices produced by the female vocal tract. Why? Because the training data was all based on recordings of the men that were in the labs. Uh, so this has been a through line uh, since the beginning. Uh, the challenge, of course, now, and Kathy O'Neill, you know, points this out, you know, um, uh, in great eloquence in her book, uh, is we're now at a point where those algorithms are operating at a global scale. They are pervasive, ubiquitous, um, and uh, opaque, uh, you know, by which she means um, uh, they are so complicated that if you even ask the developers themselves, what are the variables that are contributing to the output of their algorithms, they can't necessarily tell you. Um, and so you see it showing up all over the place. So as an example, you, you mentioned about the hiring managers. Uh, there's data that shows that the automated resume screeners, when screening for software developer positions, will screen out uh, uh, with greater frequency resumes that have names that look like female names. Uh, why? Because the training data has mostly resumes with male names. Uh, nobody intentionally programmed that into the algorithm. Uh, it's been shown that when women uh, search for jobs online, uh, they tend to get shown jobs with uh, lower salaries uh, than men. Um, uh, when um, when they, there's a technique called um, uh, word embedding, which is used when you're training algorithms in natural language processing uh, so that the algorithm learns um, uh, what words are like, more likely to occur in the context of other words, which raises the overall performance of an NLP system. And uh, based on a, I think it was a million word Google News database, uh, the algorithm actually came up with the following association. It's, it sounds so comical as to not believe that it's real, but uh, this has been published data. Uh, um, man is to computer programmer as woman is to homemaker. Um, and we can all say, oh no, that can't be, but, but it is. Um, so uh, uh, some interesting uh, things I've read recently, um, um, language translation systems, if they see that uh, a person is being referred to as a doctor at the beginning of the text will make the assumption to use the pronoun he uh, throughout the rest of the text. Um, uh, that starts to get into, again, what are our cultural expectations? Uh, who's reading that? Um, what influence does that have on the people who are reading it? Um, the last example I'll give you, because it's one of my favorites, um, which is a little bit different, uh, is think about the voices of all of the uh, digital assistants that we are now also familiar with, uh, Siri, Alexa, and so on. Uh, people playing the role of assistants, uh, not by accident, uh, are all have female voices. Um, 
Most of them actually have the choice of voice and people choose the female voice with the exception of um, the um, uh, system uh, Watson, which is the expert. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, whether it's bias that has an explicit outcome, like your resume doesn't get through the screener, to a implicit outcome, which is how do we think about the roles of men versus women? Uh, this stuff is seeping into the ecosystem and it's uh, dangerous in a number of ways. And I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about that because you've clearly outlined there's a problem. You've told us the numbers, the disparity of who's going into tech. Uh, it's not based on the same numbers of who's going into school, who's getting good grades. So we're clear now that there's th that disparity. We're clear that you're telling us these examples of, of gender bias in the algorithm creation and, and uh, along the experience. Okay, so why, would, why does it matter? Why is it something that our listeners should care about or do something about? Well, clearly it matters because the output of these systems impact people's lives. Uh, and so to the extent that they're going to impact uh, women in a, uh, in a differential and negative way, then we need to care about it. Uh, by the way, of course, the same thing is true of other kinds of underrepresented groups. The bottom line is that, uh, you know, the biases show up in the groups that are either most underrepresented or misrepresented in the training data, right? We know that. Uh, so I don't mean to make the case that gender bias is the only thing we need to be worried about when we think about algorithmic bias, but it's one uh, that we do need to pay attention to. Um, uh, so uh, I think we have to ask ourselves, um, uh, who is at the design and development table uh, when we're building these systems? Um, and we know that that matters uh, both because of the outcomes, and we'll talk more about um, how we can impact that, but also in terms of what people choose to work on. Um, what are the problems that this incredible technology is being directed at uh, depends in part on uh, who are in both the leadership roles as well as in the strategy roles uh, in, these, in the companies that are um, trying to develop products and services. Um, and so we need people um, of a much more diverse nature. We need more women, we need more people of color, we need people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and so on because they are focused on different sets of problems. Um, in addition to the fact that they will also have a different eye towards uh, what is the goal of the system? What are we trying to accomplish? Uh, what is the um, impact of a false positive or a false negative? Uh, who benefits and who loses? Um, those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked and they need to be asked by uh, a diverse set of players. Yeah, I, I love that point. And uh, I, I think it's so 
critical that people realize that uh, all the biases embed in similar ways and create similar harms. And so uh, whatever the type, the flavor of bias you're talking about, you really need to look at this holistically and address it in a similar way. If you're thinking about age, gender, race, ethnicity, geography, and so forth. Um, and I think the fun part about this argument is that your tech is better when you do better at being more inclusive. Um, you know, I don't know, uh, I would imagine um, that like I, you have two daughters, um, and I imagine as you're thinking about the secret sauce of, of how you get more females engaged in this work, that uh, some of the trials and errors you've learned along the way as a parent has helped you understand how to mobilize and how to incentivize them. But uh, I don't know. I'm curious if that has helped you in your work. You know, um uh, one of the things that I think is most important is to um, have passion about what you do. So uh, it's always been sort of uh, the through line, the motivating force for the work that I do. Uh, and so uh, whether it's with my daughters or with the students, uh, the young women that I work with across the country, uh, I'm always both trying to uh, um, find out what they're passionate about, uh, instill passion in them, and also uh, share my passion about uh, being involved in the tech industry and how uh, it's not tech for tech's sake. Uh, it's that if you are involved in the tech industry, you can have an impact on the world. It's helping them understand that it doesn't matter whether you're interested in fashion or journalism or art history or clean water or healthcare, that uh, ha having being in the in the midst of the tech industry, being knowledgeable, whether you're the person writing the code or not, being knowledgeable about what technology can do so that you're at the table. Um, there are so many roles you can be in at the table. You don't have to be the one writing the code. Um, but if you really want to move the ball forward in the areas that you are most passionate about, uh, having some tech savvy is the key. I, I really believe that. Um, you know, one of my soapboxes is that an introduction to computer science should be a core requirement for anyone graduating from college because it's basic literacy. Um, and it does, it's not because everyone's going to turn out to be a coder. It's because if you know something about how software gets developed, you can bring that uh, knowledge and perspective to absolutely anything you're doing when you're working with the people who actually are writing that code. What's possible? What's not possible? Did you think about this? Uh, why don't we use the technology this way or that? But you have to have a sense of comfort and just a little bit of knowledge uh, in order to be sitting at that table and asking those questions. You know, uh, we talked about, you know, it matters who's at the table. There's this expression of humans in the loop. Um, and people are talking about that a lot now in terms of the challenges we're talking about, algorithmic bias, ethical AI, and so on. And uh, I firmly believe uh, believe that to be true. Uh, the nuance of it is which humans. Uh, it matters 
if you're going to set up a, for example, a, a data inspection team that's going to ask the hard questions about your training data, it matters which humans you have at the table uh, because they're going to ask different sets of questions. It's uh, not only in terms of racial, ethnic, gender diversity, but also people who understand how that system is going to be used in the real world and who's going to get impacted by whether that system goes left or right or makes decision A and B. Um, we've talked about, you read about, in fact, Miriam, you're a leader in, in ethical AI uh, and the notion of ethical review boards and so on that companies uh, um, should be setting up as a way to um, uh, keep the wheels on the road, if you will. Um, uh, but again, it matters who's on that ethical review board. Um, uh, so, um, so, so it matters. Um, and of course, because I'm coming at it from a, a pipeline higher education perspective, uh, having uh, um, humans seated in the right places in companies uh, to basically catch the problems before they get out of hand is a good near-term uh, fix. The longer-term fix is to uh, pump out a more diverse group of people who are actually designing and developing this technology. So that goes back to the higher education role uh, in terms of being intentional about recruiting and retaining uh, women who are uh, competitive and credentialed uh, to enter all of those AI machine learning uh, uh, jobs um, uh, so that uh, we've engineered the solution in rather than patching it and trying to catch it before it goes out the door. So much to unpack there, and and really, um, I, I, you know, couldn't have put it better in terms of really thinking about the humans in the loop question. Because you also have to ask, you know, where should the humans be in the loop and what should the loop look like? It's not just sort of putting humans into the loop. Uh, and so there's a ton there that I think is is really valuable food for thought. Um, Judy, you've, you've been very active in the higher education side. You've been very active in the industry side. Um, you have been affiliated with lots of different nonprofits. Of course, there is also a role for government in all of this. And as you uh, have surely noticed, we have a new administration in town uh, in D.C. Um, we've been asking all of our guests, you know, if you could put out a, a couple of top wish list items for the Biden administration in terms of how they can help uh, mobilize progress on all of these issues that we've been talking about. You know, what would you suggest? What would you put on their agenda? So that's a great question. And I actually have a wish list question for a uh, request for the Biden administration. And uh, I mentioned it uh, a few minutes ago, and that is uh, that an introduction to computer science should be a core requirement for anyone getting an undergraduate degree. Uh, that's an easy thing to say. It's incredibly difficult to execute on uh, because uh, it requires a significant investment. It means more faculty, more classrooms, more equipment, more labs, uh, so on and so forth uh, on a nationwide basis. But we are living in the digital age, and it's my opinion that um, although 
uh, everyone will not become a computer scientist or a software developer. Uh, we are going to be surrounded by people who are uh, not only developing that technology, but uh, um, uh, delivering that technology in ways that affects all of our lives. So it's basic literacy. Um, we do know that, that the Biden administration has placed uh, priority on science and technology, elevated uh, one of those positions to, uh, I believe, a, um, uh, uh, a cabinet level type of position. Uh, and that's a great start. Um, but I think that this is going to require uh, investment in higher education. And we all know higher education is uh, suffering uh, as a result of the pandemic, as well as um, uh, sort of institutional systemic challenges uh, in terms of the model of higher education. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's sort of the, the number one request. Uh, I guess the second one uh, gets to this focus of mine, which is at the intersection of academia and industry. And that is to find uh, the right, most productive ways to incent industry to collaborate with higher education in order to um, uh, be able to train the next generation of technology workers uh, uh, in the tools that they really need to be successful. Uh, I don't think that boot camps and uh, certificates and so on is necessarily the right answer. I think the right answer is uh, using our institutions um, and aiming them at the kind of skills that are needed for the 21st century. Uh, all of that requires incentives, um, um, funding, uh, and uh, the sort of acknowledgement that to end up with a diverse workforce in tech, you have to be intentional. Uh, you have to understand what the challenges are for women and other underrepresented groups, uh, see what the barriers are, um, um, and incent industry, uh, as well as uh, um, academia, to uh, change the way <laughs> they do business as usual in order to produce different outcomes. Well, I hope they're listening because you clearly know uh, what we need. And it's always so much fun to talk to you, Judy, because you have both a big picture view, you're optimistic and you see where we need to go, uh, but you're also in the trenches and you're doing the work with our next generation, ensuring that we have the leaders that we need and that will make us uh, be the country we can be, have the tech that we can and should have. And uh, so we're so fortunate uh, to hear from you and to share your voice with our listeners. But before we let you go, uh, one question we like to ask is just to sum it up in a few words, we think of the rose, the thorn, and the bud of AI. So if I could ask you, what is it that you are excited about? What is it you're fearful of? And what are you looking forward to on the horizon of AI? So uh, what I am excited about is that AI has been uh, 50 plus years in the making. Um, and that um, it does seem that we are at an inflection point of it being able to uh, really make transformational change 
uh, in our lives for the good. Um, the easiest example of that is in healthcare and medicine. So I am so excited about the potential that we're already seeing in terms of how uh, AI technology is going to transform healthcare and medical outcomes. Uh, it, you know, it's going to be, uh, it already is mind blowing. Um, so uh, the same is true for other uh, important, you know, uh, globally important things like climate change, um, um, you know, food insecurity uh, and so on. So, so I believe that technology will be at the heart of solving and AI is the bleeding edge of technology as a whole, will be at the heart of solving the world's biggest problems. No question about it in my mind. Um, uh, what do I worry about? I, uh, I worry that um, uh, we've got too many people, uh, we've got an overrepresentation of people who can think about a dystopian future uh, instead of thinking about um, uh, a future in which the technology actually promotes equity as opposed to promotes bigger disparities between the haves and the have nots. And I think that uh, part of the reason why all the futuristic movies about the future of AI have this dystopian future uh, is because of who is at the table thinking about the future, get a different set of people uh, at the table or a more diverse set of people at the table and I think the vision for the future would be different. So, so that's what worries me is that we don't uh, uh, we don't have uh, all of the rich ideas coming from the diversity in our population that are contributing to how this technology will impact our futures. Um, uh, the the third thing that I will say is that I think there is this. Um, in, in the hope category, um, I think there is a vision that I happen to believe in that the real future of AI is uh, can be can be seen as figuring out the perfect collaboration between people and machines. That it's not about the technology replacing people, nor is it about the opposite of that and somehow keeping it out. It's about the acknowledgement that technology has always been about augmenting what people can do and what they're capable of, the sort of so-called sort of exoskeleton, if you will, uh, to make us superhumans. But in order to do that, you have to design in from the beginning this idea that it's a balance between uh, human-centered and machine-enabled design. Now, those of us in the technology field have been hearing the mantra about uh, human-centered design forever, uh, while we're jamming AI technology uh, into our businesses. And the, the, the future, the hope for the future is that we finally understand that it's actually a balance of designing from the ground up 
products and systems and services and businesses in which there's this balance between human-centered and machine-enabled. And if we can get there, then I think we'll have uh, uh, a real transformational value that gets delivered not only to businesses, but to society. What a perfect place to end or hopefully just pause our conversation for us to pick up at a later point. Judy, thank you so much for joining us today. It is wonderful to hear what you're working on, what we have to look forward to, and how we can support your work. It's been my pleasure. Wonderful talking to you both. Thanks. What an incredible conversation that was. I am just so moved and inspired by Judy's clear passion and, and, and knowledge and, and just the, the way that she's crossed between academia, the highest echelons of industry, and now really putting her energy and her skills and her passion to work to, to uplift um, an entire generation of women. We are so fortunate for her work. I think it's really exciting to hear about the impact she's having uh, in, in her space, which is all critical. It's the area where we lose so many women and, and persons of color in college, where they could be on the horizon of, of leading in tech. They, they could, they're on the cusp. They're at that pivotal crossroads where they could be making uh, important decisions of such consequence, both to their own financial future uh, and also the future of tech. And uh, we're so fortunate that she is there helping guide them and support them uh, to make sure that tech is more inclusive and, and that our AI is better as a result. A hundred percent. One thing that jumped out to me uh, also from her conversation, which was I think one of her strategies for, for doing that work is to really emphasize that it's not about AI or technology for its own sake. Uh, AI and technology are tools and they can help us solve problems. And to me, that was just a really important message, uh, both in general, in terms of kind of how we treat these technologies and how we think about them, but also particularly about how we inspire more people from more diverse backgrounds to get into technology. It's not just because technology is cool. It's because technology can help us do the things that we want to do in the world and solve the problems that we so need to solve. So right. It's such an important point that we don't need everyone to graduate with a computer science degree, but we do need this literacy so that people can accomplish whatever their dream is and not be hamstrung by not understanding technology. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful that, that she helped us understand that and that she also helped answer the question of this, uh, I think, false pretense that it needs to be either machines or people. It needs to be both. And what we need to be thinking about is who are the people and what are the questions we are asking to ensure that this feedback loop is productive and not a bubble that's restricting technology and its uses. Amen to that. What a, what a great conversation. Can't wait for the next one. Yeah, we'll see you soon, Miriam. See you, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.